Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. We just sang those words. I hope that's your heart this morning. I'm excited about the message this morning. And I hope it can be an encouragement to you. Those of you who have King James, sorry, New King James Bibles, please open to Hebrews 11:13. If you don't have a New King James, you can open to John 6:66. 6, Okay, those of you who have New King James, please read with me from Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Okay, so this is for those of you who aren't familiar with what we just did. This is part of a series of messages on separation and nonconformity. And we're reading these verses every uh, Sunday that we have one of these messages. The title of the message this morning is Live Life. And um, last week, John gave us a very challenging message about giving our lives for Christ. And uh, I was I was thinking as he went through that message, and I mentioned this at the end of the service. If we're to give our lives for Christ, what does that look like? And I was thinking about this title because I'd already been looking at this message and thinking about this message, and I had to I had to work on my message a little bit, which I was glad for. Actually, just about all these messages are being changed a little bit by me studying to preach through them because I'm thinking about them differently. What does it look like to live as a martyr for Christ and to be prepared to die as a martyr for Christ? I want to read John 6, beginning at verse 66. This, you might think, seems like a little bit different line of thought, but this is kind of my text for the message this morning. I'm not going to spend any time on it. I'm just going to read it. I want you to really pay attention to the message of these verses. John 6, verse 66. From that time, many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter saith, but Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I 
talking about separation and nonconformity, we're talking about where we want to go with life. Where do you want to go with life? Do you want to turn from the Son of Man, the Son of God, and go another way? Or is your statement like Peter's, to whom shall we go, you have the words of eternal life? We have a little paper that we cut off the cover of a lifeline some years ago on our refrigerator. And the title of it is, What Are Martyrs Made Of? I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but it's written by John Tillotson, 1630 to 1649. In vain does any man pretend that he will be a martyr for his religion when he will not rule an appetite, nor restrain a lust, nor subdue a passion, nor cross his covetousness for the sake of it, and for the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie hath promised. He that refuses to do the lesser is not likely to do the greater. To live as a martyr and be prepared to die as a martyr. Sadly, there's this idea afloat that the offense of the cross is not really necessary for Christian life. When I say it's afloat, I'm saying that it's in our world today, it's in Christian thought, that the offense of the cross isn't really necessary. I plead with you this morning not to fall for that falsehood. but rather to embrace the cross. The cross is not something that you just hang around your neck. The cross is an instrument of death. And Jesus calls us to the cross of death. Jesus went to the cross voluntarily and He calls you to voluntarily follow Him to the cross of death. Self-sacrifice. Because beyond the cross, you will discover glory. The glory of God in the resurrection of Jesus and in your own resurrection of life. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So Peter lays out in his epistle, 1 Peter He lays out a foundation and he finishes chapter 3 with a a call to to what Christ did on the cross for us. And he begins chapter 4 with, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, 
Arm yourselves with the same thought process. That's the way you ought to be thinking about life. That I'm going to suffer in the flesh. And we talked about in Sunday school this morning, what are our enemies? The devil, the world, and the flesh. Arm yourselves with the mindset that following Christ is going to be a way of the cross. That's what He did. And we should have that same perspective. And Peter gives us reasons why we ought to do that. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And he goes on to say that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And so we're still here. And I was thinking in Sunday school that we're still in the world and we're still in the flesh and we're still, we're still faced by temptation from the devil. We're exposed to those things. And I wondered when I became a Christian, and when the Lord poured His Holy Spirit on me, I wondered why He left us here to face those things. It's because it's about the glory of God. My life after I become a Christian is about the glory of God. We often use... Romans chapter 12, when we talk about separation and nonconformity, I want to go to those verses this morning. Several of those verses, two of those verses. So Paul lays out this, this theological framework about what happens in the Christian life or what, what the foundation of the Christian life is, he goes up through the book of Romans. It's more than that, but I'm just giving you that as, a, as kind of a, a beginning point for, for what we need to understand about this passage. And as he comes up through chapter 11, he starts talking about the olive branch and how the, the, the natural olive branch was torn off and the wild olive branch was grafted in. and The Gentiles were grafted in as a wild olive branch. And that we need to be careful, we need to fear, we need to be careful about our position as Gentile Christians because if God took off the natural branches, then why would He spare us if we're not faithful? And then He comes to the end of chapter 11 and He, and, and he goes on to, He finishes up there in chapter 11 talking about the mercy of God. It's by His mercy that we have been grafted in. And then He says, the beginning of chapter 12, on the basis of that, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the good and acceptable, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the purpose of the Christian life is to prove the will of God for His glory. And the way that we do that is to present our bodies for His service. Present your bodies a living sacrifice to God to serve that purpose. So then Paul goes on here from this verse. He goes on in the next three chapters, the rest of chapter 12, all of chapters 13 and 14. 
in the first part of chapter 15 to talk about what that looks like practically. How do you fulfill the will of God? And he talks about brotherhood relationships. He talks about government relationships. He talks about relationships with your enemies. He talks about relationships with those that you disagree on insignificant matters. And in chapter 14, verse 7, he says something that's very interesting, very fascinating passage here. Romans 14, 7. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So the context of these verses is, is Paul talking about people who view food differently, people who view um, the recognition of certain days differently. And then he says, for no one lives to himself and no one dies to himself. You are not, your life is not autonomous, ruled only by in relation to itself. Your life is intertwined with other lives. But there's another thing that Paul's pointing out in this passage, and it's the fact that in that intertwined, linked relationships, you have a responsibility, and that responsibility, in that responsibility, you are accountable to God. And the thing that you need to be concerned about is not judging your brother. The thing you need to be concerned about is whether you are putting a stumbling block in your brother's way to keep him, to, to harm him in his walk with God. There's two things that I want to bring out of that. So we're thinking about what does it look like to live as a martyr? One of them is that God is the center of our lives. Paul is making it very clear that the center of your life must be God. You aren't making your decisions on the basis of your brother so much as you are making them on God. The center of your life is God. And then the other thing is that you allow God to direct in your human relationships instead of you taking your own way and making it, doing it your own way. Now I want to go back. I just want to, to put those two things out there. The idea that our relationships are interlinked and that we're accountable to God primarily for how we handle those relationships. Now I want to go back and, and look at a little bit at the fall, what happened in the fall, 
and what that means in relation to how we live today. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Old nursery rhyme. There's something that we can learn from that nursery rhyme. Adam and Eve had everything going for them. They were sitting on the wall. But Adam and Eve had a great fall. And the essence of life was broken by that fall. And all of human effort, the best of human effort, cannot restore the broken pieces that we're left with. So I wish somebody could tell me where this is, but there's a story about a little boy who prayed and the eggs were healed. They had some eggs and those eggs were very precious for some reason. And he prayed about these eggs. Traveling? It's in the pineapple story. Okay. Um, And he prayed about these eggs and the eggs were healed. We can't fix a broken egg. When we break an egg, and I can attest to this, it gets rotten and stinks. But when an egg is, is good, when it's in its original state, it can sit for months and not go bad at room temperature. It doesn't have to be refrigerated as long as it doesn't get too warm. It can sit for a long time and stay alive. And then if you bring it up to, to hatching temperature, 21 days, you have a chick. Question is, we were shattered by the fall. Can the God who creates an egg also heal an egg? Can God heal our problems that happened in the fall? So now I want to take us back to a question I asked earlier in the message. And it has to do with Where do you want your life to go? Talking about the disciples, Peter's response to Jesus when many left him. What do you want? And that question is a question about your desire. What is your desire for your life? What do you want to be? And we all know exactly what I mean when I'm talking about that. You understand what desire is because you have desire within you. It's not something that we can particularly see, but it's something that exists within us. We know that it's there. Adam and Eve were created with that desire. They were, and that desire was meant in its original state to deepen their relationship with God, that they would seek to know Him That desire was there. But when they sinned, what they did was they pursued a desire that was outside of God's plan. So they followed a desire that was not what God wanted them to do. And so 
Our life as human beings and also sin are inseparable from our desire. Desire is involved in both sin and life. What do I mean by that? Well, sin, through the fall, took our desires and focused them on pleasing ourselves. And that's the definition of lust. When our desire is centered around pleasing ourselves, it is lust. And lust, when it is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And so the the desire to please ourselves and to serve ourselves does not lead to life. It leads to death. So what about life? What would the best life possible look like anyway? Because we have all these broken pieces that we're dealing with. So what would the best life possible look like? John 10, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the door. The door is the way that you enter. And then the next verse. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Quite a few years ago, I was fascinated by the statement of Jesus because it really says two things. The one thing that it says is that life is needed. I am come that they might have life. So he's saying that there's, there's a problem with people that not having life, and I'm coming to restore that life. But he's also saying that that life that he is coming to bring, he is going to expand into something that is abundant. So he's not just saying he's going to bring life. He's saying, I'm going to bring life, and that life is going to grow into something that's abundant. And that we can have it. He's also saying that. When Jesus was asked to distill all good teaching to its essence, he quoted a passage from Deuteronomy. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, our God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, that's the ESV. Embedded in Jesus' words is the implication that you and I are fundamentally beings that love And as beings that love, there is no object of our love that is more true, beautiful, good, or worthy than the God of Abraham and Paul. Seek God first, get this right, and everything else becomes right. That's a quote from Steve Brubaker. We are fundamentally beings that love. And underneath of love, underneath of true love, is a foundation. And that foundation is commitment. True love is grounded in commitment. God extends His love towards us 
in the New Testament. Testament is commitment. Covenant. Testament is covenant. God extends a covenant relationship to us. And if we enter into that covenant relationship, we experience His love. But true love can only be found through true, through deep commitment. And so Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Self-denying commitment. A decision to forsake all and follow Jesus through the cross to resurrection and life. And that leads to love. Life where our desire is God-focused. Focused on knowing Him. I'm not going to spend much time on that because I cover that idea pretty often. But I want to go on to thinking about this thing of life in relation to knowing God. 2 Peter 1.3 According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see, the corruption, the, the decomposing of our world, is happening because of lust. And it's through the knowledge of Jesus Christ that we escape that corruption. And we not only escape it, but we also receive everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. So what does that look like? Well, to me, that looks like a life that is full. It's a life filled up. 1 Peter 3.10 For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Do you want to love life? We're talking about how we live. How we're going to live. He that would love life Peter says, and see good days, let him discipline himself. Refrain from evil and from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil, again, a discipline, and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So now we're entering into the desire words. Seeking peace, pursuing peace, doing good. What I want you to remember is that we are love-oriented beings. 
I have told quite a few atheists, and I don't think one of them has argued with me on this point, that we are primarily relational. We find the most meaning in life in relationship. The things that matter the most to us in life are relationships. And they do not argue with me on that point. I haven't had a single person argue with me on that point. Maybe somebody will today. But God is giving us things here. Refrain from evil and do good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Those are things that build relationships. Doing good is something that builds relationships. And deep down inside, we know that we should be doing good. Everybody knows that. That's a universal consciousness. We should be doing good. We may disagree sometimes on what that means, but we know that we ought to be doing it. And a meaningful life is not an easy life, but it's a life that's anchored in what is truly good. And the only thing that is truly good is God. The Lord our God. So I still haven't talked really about how we live. First thing I'd like to share with you is something that good friend Daniel Miller has talked to me about several times. It's one of his favorite topics. And he calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. When you get a new affection, it changes the way that you think about the world and about things and about what you do. and It just changes things. He used the illustration one time of a corn silker. It's this thing with these brushes and the brushes roll like this and you push the corn cob into it and, and it peels the, the silk off. But that, it, that silker doesn't have anything that's actually giving the cob forward motion. And so to get the, the way to get the cob out or the ear out of the silker is to push another cob in. And when you push that next cob in, the other one comes out the other side. That's how our affection is. When we have a new affection, it ejects the other affection out of our heart. It moves it. The difference between the Christian and the non-believer, what separates the Christian from the unbeliever is that he has a new affection. And as a result of that, the old affections are expelled out of his life by this new affection. And we sacrifice to the things that we have love for. And so we begin to sacrifice the things of the old affection for the things of the new affection. And we start to pursue the things that enhance the new affection. Deuteronomy 6. 
This is Jesus's the passage that Jesus that I quoted earlier from Deuteronomy four and five, six, four and five. Begin at verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you this day, so now we're going on from what I read earlier. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see what's happening in that passage? They have an affection for the Lord. You shall love the Lord with all that you have. And then what He says shall be in your heart. Because you have an affection. Think about your relationships. The people that you love, the things that they say matter to you. So it shall be in your heart. And then you're going to start talking about them. You're going to teach them diligently to your children. But you're not just going to teach them diligently at family devotions in the evening. It's going to be as you walk by the way. As you stand up. As you lay down. Conversation about God is just going to be coming out of you. If you have an affection. A true affection for God. But that's not where it stops. You're not just going to be talking about it. You're going to bind those things as a sign on your hand. You shall... They shall be as frontless between your eyes. Everywhere you go, everything that you see, all the things that you do, the fab- every part of the fabric of life is affected by the affection that you have in your heart. And if that affection is the Lord your God, it's going to change the way you live from the inside out completely. It's going to change your priority structure. It's going to change the way that you think about what's important in life. I don't have a lesson on devotional life. I ought to. What do you spend your time doing? And think about the person who has an affection for the things of this world. They're going to be spending time devoted to the things of this world. But the person that has an affection for God ought to be spending time devoted, which is the root of devotion, to God. Then you're going to make decisions differently. What should I do? Well, what are you going to think about? You're going to think about what you love. That's what you're going to think about. And you're going to decide on the basis of what you love. What about the vehicle that you buy? What about how you use the vehicle that you buy? What about the clothes that you wear? Are they going to be affected? These are are things we're going to talk, some of these stuff we're going to talk about in some of the later lessons. But what I want to 
What I want to get to with this message is the idea that the Christian is separate in all of life. He's separate in the way he relates to the government. He's separate in the way he relates to his neighbor. He's separate in the way he thinks about his what kind of a house he's going to buy and what he's going to use that house for. He looks at the idols of our society and he says, no, I don't want to have anything to do with that. What kind of decisions am I going to make personally in relation to the things around me? What kind of an environment am I going to be part of? Brothers and sisters, we live a separate lifestyle because we're Christian. But it is because of a separate love. We love something that is different than the rest of the world. To live as a martyr means that I'll deny selfish living, not only in areas of sin, but also in areas that are not wrong in themselves. It means that I will choose the things that are God-pleasing. We sang number 97. It's one of my favorite songs. I asked Trevlin, I told Trevlin I'd be happy if he would lead it. This is the last point that I want to share about this whole thing of our life as a Christian. 2nd verse, praise to the Lord who are all things so wondrously reigneth, shelters thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how thy desires e'er have been granted in what he ordaineth? God ordained life. And he created your desires. Desires are not inherently evil. In His God-ordained plan, your desires have a place in that plan. The last part of Deuteronomy 6, verse 24, says this, and the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that He might preserve us alive as it is this day. God has given us His Word so that we can order our lives in such a way that our desires can find that good fulfillment in Him. We won't ever be completely free from the broken pieces of this world while we're here. But where are we looking to satisfy our desires? God says that He's given us His Word for our good always. And I want to I'm going to say something. I hope you understand it. This is not a statement that's based on doing. This is something that's based on expectation of life and being. God wants you to be what His Word says. Yes, you need to do, 
But it's not about doing, it's about being what His Word says. And there's a difference between those two things. God doesn't want you to search His Word to find out what to do. He wants you to search His Word to find out what to be. And then you do because He tells you what to do to be that. To live life is to live His Word. That's what Jesus was. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you and I are His brothers and sisters. And God wants to demonstrate His glory in the world by us living His Word. The New Testament. The New Commitment. How committed are you to following, to living His Word? And I'm not saying that let me say this yet. How, how much do you believe that this book has the answers to your desires about life? And I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm saying that to give you hope. And I'll tell you why. Because in Romans 15, as Paul finishes up all those things that he talks about, he says... For even Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before are written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. We have something to hope for. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. That you may be, that you may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Had a good friend, Scott Showalter. Many of you know his name. He and his wife, two daughters, and their hired man died in a manure pit in 2007. He was. He and I became fast friends around this book. In about 2003, 2004, God did a tremendous work in my life and a tremendous work in his life. And one day, walking out of church, I looked at him and I said, would you be interested in a Bible study? And he said, yeah. After he, well, he, first of all, he looked at me in shock. He was really surprised that I said anything to him about it. We hadn't really had not much contact before that. And he called me that afternoon and said, absolutely. So we started a Bible study. <clears throat> anyway, he told me his story. He was struggling in life. He had a lot of questions that were unanswered. He went and talked to somebody that felt there was something special about that person. Something that he wanted. And he asked him, he poured out his troubles and he asked him, 
you know, what, what should I do? And they said, the answers are in your Bible. You ought to be reading it. And he picked up this book and he opened up his heart to God and he asked God to show him the truth. And God changed Scott. And he changed me. And he's still in the process of changing me. May we be people who live the word. May God bless you. Shall have a school.